this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 70. <gasps> yes, 70 episodes. Who would have thought? This is the 17th part of the 100-mile history. This episode will be hot. I will tell the story of the early attempts to hike and run from Badwater in Death Valley to the summit of Mount Whitney, lowest to highest points in the lower 48 United States. These events were the routes toward the establishment of the famous Badwater Ultramarathon. Walks and runs across Death Valley in California during the hot summer started as early as 1966 when Jean-Pierre Marquant from Nice, France accomplished a 102-mile loop around the valley that included climbing two of the highest mountains. This started a Death Valley hiking and running frenzy in the lowest and hottest place in North America. It mostly concentrated on 100-plus mile end-to-end journeys across the blazing wilderness. End-to-end records were set, broken, and recorded by the Death Valley Monument Rangers. All of these accomplishments were the roots of what eventually would become the Badwater Ultramarathon. But when did trekking from Badwater, minus 282 feet, to the top of Mount Whitney, 14,505 feet, start? In 1937, Texaco tested 14 automobiles of various models going from Mount Whitney Portal to Badwater in temperatures in the 120s to see if both engines and tires could handle it. It was called, quote, one of the most grueling tests ever given to automobiles in history, and it was successful. In 1939, the low and high points received more attention when the San Francisco Examiner published a motor log stating that seeing both in one drive was a must-see. More attention brewed in 1956 when a Los Angeles newspaperman, Richard Hathcock, made a film of a four-day trip by car from Badwater to Mount Whitney that was shown on ABC's Bold Journey show. Bold Journey your television passport to the exciting, colorful world of adventure. In 1958, an article in the Boston Globe promoted the area with, Do you like extremes? You can see Mount Whitney, the highest point in the United States, and Badwater, the lowest point, from the same place at Dante's View. You can travel in a few hours from the heat of the desert to the snowfields of the High Sierra. The first documented hikers to go from Badwater to the top of Mount Whitney were James Burnworth and Stanley Rodifer from San Diego, California, who in November 1969 backpacked the route in two weeks. Instead of using roads, they took a direct route across the valley. They said they did it just for the heck of it. They survived on food and water that they had buried in various locations ahead of time. By 1970, many hikers were making the trek across Death Valley, but not yet up to Mount Whitney Summit too. It was reported, The way park rangers tell it, they'll need crosswalks pretty soon to handle all the foot traffic across Death Valley. 
1970, about a half dozen hikers made the trek, including one pulling a miniature covered wagon. A ranger reported, We've got a big list of inquiries from persons who want to walk, run, hike, skip, jump, and handstand their way through here, and we just can't keep up with it anymore. Rangers stopped trying to keep end-to-end valley records. They had given up keeping tabs on hikers. There were just too many. Paul Fow, age 21, of Arcadia, California, was a student at St. Mary's College in California. As a class project in psychology, he decided to try to run Death Valley end-to-end. He accomplished it during the winter of 1971 in three days, two hours. He thought he was the first one to do this, but he was not. See episode 62. About a month later, he ran back in the other direction, taking three days, but was on his feet for about 26 hours. He was the first known person to run it in both directions. A couple months later in May, he also climbed Mount Whitney with a friend, but not in a continuous trip from Badwater. But news of both his Death Valley runs and his climb up Mount Whitney were widely published together. In January 1972, Fow was working as a counselor at LaSalle High School in Sierra Madre, California. As part of his outdoor exploration, safety, and survival course, he organized a group of students to go with him on a 10-day backpacking trip from Badwater to the base of Mount Whitney, about 130 miles. Their planned route was to never be more than two miles from the road. The boys trained by doing daily five-mile runs for a month. The group of 11 boys and Fowl started out on January 19, 1972. They completed their hike faster than planned in eight days. Fow said, We ran into just about everything there was to run into. The weather was good for about half the trip, but then we ran into snow and ice, crossing the mountains, and we used a lot of rope. On the third day, we ran out of water, and we are away from contact with the support column. We were out of water for 16 hours. There was a lot of discomfort, but no serious problem. Fow and two others had planned to also climb Mount Whitney, but canceled that plan due to bad, snowy weather. Fow later became a prosecuting attorney in Los Angeles and became an extreme adventurer. He skied to the North Pole and led two expeditions to the top of Mount Everest, including a famous 1995 climb that was made into a documentary involving the grandson of George Mallory, the early Mount Everest climber. Mount Everest uh, is a compelling place, and it has been one heck of an obsession for me over the many years. In August 1973, Kenneth Crutchlow, originally from England, and Pax Beale from San Francisco ran a two-mile relay from Badwater to the top of Mount Whitney. Crutchlow was a self-promoting endurance stunt artist. In 1970, he had raced Bruce Maxwell, a tennis professional, across Death Valley lengthwise for five days. Crutchlow also once swam from Alcatraz to San Francisco and accomplished many other stunts. Beale was a military heavyweight boxing champion who co-founded an early running club in the 1960s. Crutchlow was intrigued that the lowest and highest points in the continental United States were so close together. He developed a burning desire to attempt a speed record from Badwater to the top of Mount Whitney and proposed making the run as a relay with Beale. 
At first, Beale had zero desire to lug his 200-plus pound frame across the desert until it was brought into context to his own field, which was medicine. An idea was hatched to involve marathon legend Dr. Joan Oliot to study the effects of the two on the run. It was reported, The day of August 18th was set. A pit crew of seven was assembled, including a UPI photographer and a freelance writer. Avis donated a car and station wagon, and a third wagon was rented. The two trained by jogging in a sauna. They assembled everything the day before, including a mattress for the runners on the floor of one of the wagons, several chests of ice and dry ice, and ten cases of Gatorade. A plan was established for a run of about 40 hours. Dr. Oliot set up her medical gear, which included a portable generator, centrifuge, miniature EKG, emergency drugs and IVs, bathroom scales, specimen bottles, syringes, thermometers, and more. More importantly, she made them sign a medical waiver so she wouldn't be liable for problems. At 4 a.m. on August 18, 1973, Crutchlow set off running the first mile of the relay from Badwater Basin into the 105-degree darkness to the cheers of, quote, Nine solitary souls echoing in the vastness of the enduring desert. Elaine Peterson was part of the crew. She was an experienced Bay Area marathon runner who in 1968 was one of several women who jumped in and ran the Boston Marathon when women were not allowed to run it. Peterson reported that she and the others who were in the crew ran, quote, empathy legs to know what the experience was like. She changed her thoughts from they can do it to how can they stand it? They devised some Arab headgear which was soaked in ice water between relay legs. Oh, when you're running, the coolest place to run on pavement is on the white line. The white line, the sun heat rays get reflected off of the white line. With the black, it absorbs the heat and it's much, much hotter. The white line, compared to touching the pavement, it's a big difference in the heat. And the runner's feet and the, can definitely tell me. Runner's feet will pick up more heat, but they don't, uh, they'll, they'll minimize that by running on the white line. The pace slowed, and it was not an optimistic group that stumbled into stovepipe wells, mile 42, at noon, where a thermometer in the shadiest, coolest nook recorded 116 degrees. Dr. Oliot took blood samples and the weight of the two runners. Crutchlow had already lost 10 pounds and was cold and clammy. His vital signs were fine, and he was determined to go on, so off he went. But soon he became vomiting violently, <laughs> so Olio took him to Panamint Springs to cool off. Beale was doing fine and took over all the running. But when he reached the springs, about mile 73, he didn't look very good either. Crutchlow recovered finally and rejoined the relay. Then disaster struck. As we came into the unexpected searing heat of the next valley, they lost momentum. Our shaky research had not shown this second desert. Oh, no! It was the low point mentally for all of us. We knew that the 40-hour goal was impossible. They halted at midnight 20 hours to make new plans. There was no mention of quitting, but Oliot proposed a five-hour sleep break. They drove to the top of Inyo Range, where it was cooler, and they all passed out. In the morning at 5 a.m., they resumed from their stopping point with a skeleton crew. 
At times, the runners switched every quarter mile, but were confident that they would finish. They successfully reached Lone Pine, about 122 miles, by late afternoon, where it was a frigid 96 degrees. Their advance team had secured a motel with a pool for the crew. The runners continued on to Whitney Portal so that they could start the climb up Mount Whitney at daybreak. On the hike up the mountain, three of the crew went with them and said they were spent bullets. Passing hikers had heard what they were doing and were amazed. Wow. The snow they hiked through felt good on their Achilles tendons. They actually quickened their pace as the roof of the summit shack became visible through the sudden snowfall. When they slapped their hands on the summit marker, they were in a full run. Their elapsed time, 57 hours, 18 minutes. The enormity of the feat, which they had so underrated, would not come to them for hours. They collapsed on the spot and joined hands with every meaning that cannot be expressed in words or symbols other than that hand clasp. It's finished. We did it. The two knew that others would try to break their record. They published rather dangerous rules for future attempts to break their record. No air conditioning was allowed in support vehicles for the resting partners. I'm, I'm sorry, what? They could not leave the state highways. Their attempt must be made in early August or September on a day starting at 4 a.m. In September 1974, Bruce Maxwell, a tennis pro, who had previously raced against Crutchlow across the valley, and Tate Miller, a general manager of a dome home construction company, both from Santa Cruz, wanted to also attempt the two-man relay. A coin flip determined that Miller would start at Badwater. He left that Death Valley low spot at 4 a.m. After three miles, Maxwell took over and so on and on. They averaged about six miles an hour for the first 42 miles. By mile 43, Maxwell's right knee went out. <coughs> the same knee that had troubled him for many years. The extreme heat slowed their pace to four miles per hour by mile 60. As they climbed up and over Penament Pass, it slowed to three miles an hour, and they decided it was time to sleep. Maxwell ran from 12.30 to 3 a.m. while Miller slept, and Miller ran his long leg until daylight. It was sunrise when they left the mountain range, and at 9 a.m. around Lone Pine, each ate breakfast while the other ran. The two reached Whitney Portal at 1 a.m. in 33 hours, 15 minutes, better than Crutchlow and Beale. They pushed on to climb the mountain. Maxwell said, At that point, we were cocky and overconfident. The higher we went, the colder it got. At about 11,800 feet, our water bag froze, and for the first time we thought we were in trouble. Their photographer who hiked with them and was underdressed was in bad shape. A passing hiker agreed to take him back down. When he arrived at the bottom, he reported that the two runners were in bad condition. Authorities tried to dispatch a rescue helicopter to go search for them, but then decided not to try it at night. Meanwhile, Maxwell and Miller kept moving, but became lost in the dark and screamed for help about 10.30 p.m. Help me! They stopped and huddled in a sleeping bag. Maxwell said, We thought if we went to sleep, we'd freeze to death. We tried to keep each other awake, but we both passed out. 
At that time, we'd had only one meal in two days, and now our water was frozen. They woke up about 6.30 a.m. and reached the summit in 30 minutes. Four hours later and five miles down, they met one of their crew coming up who helped them down. Maxwell said, We were exhausted, just sick. For the next 24 hours, we ate and drank everything we could get into our systems. Their total time to the summit was reported to be 53 hours. In August 1977, Maxwell and Miller were back, determined to do the Badwater-Whitney two-man relay faster. They started at 4 a.m., running in half-hour shifts through the blazing heat. Maxwell recalled early into the run, It was only 8.30 a.m., but the distant mountains were already shimmering through the heat waves that rose from the floor of Death Valley. As I slapped Tate Miller's hand, we exchanged places. He crawled out of the back of our support van and began running. I eased myself onto the mattress he just vacated. They started fast and covered the 24 miles to Stovepipe Well in about 6 hours 23 minutes. We followed the road as it wound along the eastern side of the valley, following the contours of the mountain flanks and spilled onto the valley. Looking westward, I saw miles of flat, dry, cracked mud, intermittent sagebrush, and occasional wooden crosses marking primitive gravesites offered the only respite from the glistening flatness until mountains rising abruptly defined the far side of the valley floor. Maxwell was also suffering from bad cramps and could only run about 10 minutes before collapsing. As I climbed out of the van to begin another turn, my hands were so cramped I couldn't even squeeze a water-soaked sponge over my head. Knowing I'd never be able to run for the entire half hour, I suggested we begin 14-minute turns. Mercifully, Tate agreed. They limped into Panamint Springs about four hours ahead of their previous record pace. An orange and violent sunset streaked the sky ahead of us as we followed the meandering road into the Sierra foothills. Tate finally gave up trying to run his entire turn. He began to allow himself the luxury of walking 10 of his 30 minutes. Even though it was 90 degrees, Maxwell was shaking from chills and cramps that spread throughout his body because of an electrolyte imbalance. He changed up his drinking, but that didn't help. Finally, he could run only 10 minutes and collapsed. His crew lifted him into the back of the van. Miller did most of the running until 9 p.m. when Maxwell felt much better. Thus we went through the night, trading off every two hours. A crew member walked ahead of us with a flashlight, clearing the road of snakes and scorpions. They arrived at Lone Pine just before dawn, with 13 more miles to Whitney Portal. When the sun rose, warming up our spirits, we changed back to half-hour shifts. The sun's influence proved to be illusionary as deep, deadening fatigue and the steepness of the road forced us to 15-minute intervals. After a half-hour rest, they began their Whitney climb. Two members of their crew accompanied them and carried their food, water, and cold-weather gear. The initial adrenaline-based rush of energy that propelled us up the lower part of the mountain soon dissipated. Fatigue, dizziness, nausea, and the increased altitude slowed our pace. One crew member got sick at 12,000 feet and headed back down. They reached the summit at the 35-hour, 50-minute mark. They had crushed their existing relay record. We slapped hands and fell into an embrace. 
Albert Arnold of Walnut Creek, California, a World War II veteran, was a health club director who once weighed 300 pounds before he decided to commit himself to fitness. For several years after he had heard about Crutchlow and Beale's 1973 run, he had a goal to run from Badwater solo to the top of Mount Whitney. He had tried and failed two times. The first time only made it 18 miles because of severe dehydration, and the second time he hyperextended his right knee after 50 miles when trying to shortcut across Devil's Golf Course. In August 1977, he made his third attempt. Arnold was confident this time and knew how to fuel, pace, and cool his body. He was a big guy, six foot five and 200 pounds, and wanted to run across the valley without any pacers. He knew what endurance was all about. When he was in college in 1951, he and his friends set the world record for teeter-tottering, going up and down 45,159 times for three days and nights. What's this all about, Mr. Winters? Just covering a little news story, son. Cindy and Bob, your news? Sure, they're out to set a world's record. Arnold started at 5 a.m. on August 3, 1977, at a careful, slow pace. He said, It wasn't important for me how fast it was going to be. I just wanted to complete the darn thing. That's all. I wanted to enjoy it and share the experience with everybody I came in contact with who stopped along the road. He stayed on the main road, traveling with a support car, using the future Badwater Ultramarathon format. I was excited about the beauty and fantasizing about the old prospectors, the Indians, the battles that might have been fought, the people out here struggling or perishing maybe, within a few feet of where I was running. After covering 40 miles in 10 hours, Arnold got sick and his knee really hurt. Ugh. After about 70 miles at Panamint Springs, the Department of Transportation was stopping all traffic going up the road ahead of him. There was demolition going on, and it would be a six-hour delay. Not wanting to wait that long, he grabbed two gallons of water and went off the road into Panamint Valley. The temperature was brutal in the 120s, but Arnold only made three very long stops along the way. Smoke was bad due to forest fires. Eventually I caught a glimpse of Mount Whitney, and for the first time I was able to see my object and felt a communication between this three-mile-high piece of granite and myself. I said to her, Well, you probably thought you'd never see me, but I'm going to be on top of you. She's a very powerful lady, and I didn't want to conquer her. Just be part of a relationship. After 74 hours in the morning, he started up the trail with his photographer, Phillips. Previously, they had hid a backpack with warm clothes, a sleeping bag, and food halfway up. At 12,000 feet, before the many switchbacks, Arnold was very dizzy and nearly walked off the trail several times. Thankfully, he was caught by Phillips. Eventually, they arrived at the summit. His journey had taken 84 hours. I just sat down on a rock. It was very low-key and balled my fool head off for a couple minutes. <laughs> they didn't spend much time up there and started the trek down. Phillips unwisely bounded down fast ahead to share the news. When Arnold reached the hiding place, the backpack had been stolen. It's stolen and I know it. 
He had no choice but to use a survival kit and huddle in a plastic lining for the night. He was able to hobble down the rest of the way in the morning, taking time to immerse a swollen leg in icy streams. Al Arnold had clearly demonstrated it was possible for a solo runner to make the Badwater to Mount Whitney run. It took four years before his record was broken by Jay Birmingham in 1981, with 75 hours and 34 minutes. In 2002, Arnold attended the Badwater Ultramarathon and was the first inductee into the Badwater Hall of Fame. He passed away in 2017 at the age of 89. Also during August 1977, three teachers from Palmyra, Pennsylvania Middle School, who were known as the Pennsylvania Three, traveled across the country to attempt what no one else had accomplished yet, a Mount Whitney to Badwater hike, high to low. The three were David Vallon, William Snyder, and David Meckley. Benjamin Goff was their crew man. The three did have some previous Death Valley experience. They had previously walked 57 miles of the valley in August 1975. On August 9th, 1977, the three started at Whitney Portal at 6 a.m. After making a base camp, they reached Mount Whitney Summit on August 10th, and then they started their journey down heading for Badwater. The rather naive Easterners suffered from altitude sickness and muscle pulls making slow miles each day down. The three unwisely did not use the paved roads, choosing instead to hike the desert. On August 14th, near Santa Rosa Mines, they were hit by a severe sudden sandstorm that cut them up and they lost some water and supplies. Two of them spent a night on a bridge going 13 hours without water, sucking what they could from cactus. Next, they were drenched by a massive freak rainstorm caused by Tropical Storm Doreen that was hitting Southern California. They then walked into a quicksand area and had to detour 30 miles to get around it. To make matters worse, large magnetic stones caused their compasses to lose their true settings. After 11 days, on the evening of August 19th, the trio got word that the multiple sclerosis team coordinator who was sponsoring the run had decided to cancel the rest of the journey. He feared serious physical injury to the three. Several highways had been closed in Death Valley because of flooding. The last 35 to 40 miles of the mission consist of unstable ground and salt pillars and formations. There had been a series of flash floods in the area. They had planned to go through Devil's Golf Course, an area of eroded salt formations, but there was a great amount of water in it, causing salt formations to dissolve, making treacherous footing. The three were very upset about the cancellation without consulting them. They demanded to know why the hike was being canceled by those who were not there. They said they were tired, had sores and blisters, but were all healthy. It was decided to let them continue. On August 20th, 1977, after trudging through calf-deep mud at times, they all finished at Badwater. Al, the proprietor of the general store at Furnace Creek, treated the four Pennsylvanians to champagne and a filet mignon dinner. To the best of his knowledge, the Whitney to Badwater had never been done before. Al also awarded them finishing mule team belt buckles and said, Now that you have walked across Devil's Golf Course, I guess you know how the jackasses felt. 
Stay tuned for more 100 Mile History. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs> <laughs>